Welcome to Know Your Options, the Measured Risk Podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. Well, hello, it's uh, Larry Kriesmer and my partner, Bernard. Say hello, Bernard. Hello, Bernard. <laughs> Great. Our guest today <laughs> is Ben Verwise. He's the uh, co-founder and co-CEO of Fiduciary Financial Advisors. And Ben, where are you coming for, to us today? What part of the country are you in? Yeah, today I am in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Ask Grand me. Rapids, Michigan. Different day may Excellent. not be the same answer, but that's <laughs> yeah, where exactly. I call home. Well, great. We're going to spend a little time getting to know Ben better and his firm better. And let's start with uh, a little bit about what got you into the financial services industry. Sure. Yeah. I'm uh, one of those lucky few who was born to do the work that we do. I am the son of an accountant. I swore off accounting at a young age and I thought I was being creative and rebellious and went one adjacent career track over. Uh, I discovered the stock markets. I believe it was sometime around the age of 10. And at that point, decided to uh, start mowing lawns to trade money, to, to get money to trade stocks. And that was what sort of led me into the finance aspect of the work. As I got nearer to career, really realized at an early age that there was a fork in the road between either choosing kind of analytics, research, money management versus the more people oriented side of the business. Uh, I'm outgoing type A, liked the challenge of working with people, solving problems. And that is more or less what I've known I wanted to do for my whole career. That's great. I mean, that kind of leads us right into that second question. What do you think your most important role is with your clients? With clients, uh, you know, it's interesting. I guess I serve in a few different roles now. It started when I founded my RIA. I also took on the hat of entrepreneur and then balanced the hat of entrepreneur and advisor. And then as I scaled the RIA, became a manager as well. So there's three different hats that I've had to wear. And I think I'm best at wearing the client one. And so the role that I find so critical in working with clients is that I'm really way down the rabbit trail on behavioral finance. I do a lot of coaching, uh, exit planning for business owners. That's my kind of niche and specialty, uh, especially given that I am an, a, a firm owner as well. So building a scaling business is something that's relatable. And then working with those owners who are either going to sell down the road in the process of selling or have sold and are now dealing with the fallout of those sales. Uh, that behavioral coaching and how we derive value from money, as it turns out, just building a large pile of it rarely fulfills anyone, uh, is really my specialty, is coaching in that behavioral capacity and, and, driving, and, and creating the why for people out of the accumulation. That's a great observation, you know, because that, that why is a big motivator for a lot of people. It's, you know, helping them understand the why. The how is kind of, you know, they know how to make the money. It's just why they're making it. That's, that's a great observation. What frustrates you most about our business? <laughs> oh, boy. I, I so asked that question. These aren't prepared remarks. 
I don't know what questions you're going to ask me next, but that's probably my favorite question you're going to ask me the whole time because <laughs> um, in truth, I have a very clear answer to this, and it has a lot to do with how I landed where I am today. Um, I started my career. I'd been through brief stints in the banking channel, the insurance channel, started the insurance channel uh, after a time in the military, came back into 2008 during a period where there weren't a lot of jobs available and, and uh, so took the first good one I could find in the banking channel. So I got to see those both sides of those aspects of the business and then thankfully was recruited away by a large regional wirehouse type firm, Oppenheimer, and learned a lot there. I got to work at from a young age with a Barron's ranked high-end team that did great work for high-end clients. So at a young age, I had a, a formative and unique upbringing in this industry and, uh, and had also spent time in the bank channel, the insurance channel, and then the wirehouse. So I felt like I'd seen a lot of the industry. And... As I kind of settled into my role, uh, I was getting antsy because I was in a W-2 job with no ladder to climb. And so I, uh, I did what, uh, what anyone would do. Uh, so many advisors choose as a kind of a, the path of most resistance. I had a one-year-old baby at home, but used the GI Bill from my military time to go back to graduate school and did a thesis project on the history of the industry. How did we get here? what were actual differentiators and really came to this aha moment that I did not like much of what the industry had done. So this is the answer to your question, Bernard, around my frustration is that at the end of the day, this is still a fairly antiquated industry resting on a lot of old laurels and the processes and ways in which many of the advisors in the community do the work, the many of the firm leadership teams, view the work as how it should be done. I just don't, I don't see it the way that many in the industry do. So I started with pain points like who came up with the 1% management fee and why? And it turned out, I, you know, you couldn't really figure it out. It was more or less, you know, organized collusion. And, uh, and I, you know, certainly there's a, there's a, there's a profit model to run but I'm Dutch. I've got a capital V N W in my last name, right? I know how not to spend other people's money. And this is where the term going Dutch comes from going on a date. And so my, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm not in Manhattan. I'm not in San Francisco. So it seemed like if I knew how not to spend money, I could run a, a better business than what I was seeing happening across the industry, which was really motivated primarily by profit and greed often for the benefit of shareholders. And I just didn't see a lot of error concern for clients in that process. And so that was what caused me to start an RIA was to try to build what I thought should exist and had a hard time finding in the industry. And that was nine years ago. And to be honest, I still am pretty frustrated about it because it hasn't changed a whole lot. It's starting to, but it hasn't changed much. So for you, it's more the value proposition of what is the advisor bringing back to the table for the client and not, not just advice. Yeah, it's, yeah. Right. It's, I mean, I think advice is critical. And, and, and I started with a fairly simplified value proposition that was rooted in what we didn't do, which was way overcharged, charge commissions, sell annuities, things that were just sort of structurally or system, systemically troublesome to me. But over the years, yeah. I've, I've built a lot of layers of added services, deeper value, the pursuit of better advice which has caused us to launch a variety of different 
deliverables for clients and, and really figure out how to dive deeper with clients. So advice is still important. I don't want to discount you there, Larry. It, it's still very important, but ultimately felt like a better mousetrap could serve the mouse more humanely if, you know, yeah. if the goal. There's, so, yeah. There's two things I'll share with you. One is that uh, this will date me a little bit. When I got my license uh, in the Series 7 back in the late 80s, the class that I went to, we can only joke about this because we're professional to professionals here, but the the trainer actually said, you know, when, when you're in a big wirehouse and you're selling stock to a client, you know, you make some money and the firm makes some money and two out of three is not bad. And it's just, just a terrible, right. terrible thing to yeah. think about. But that that yeah. is kind of that, yeah. you know, I, I definitely feel your pain for what it was like back then. So as we think about, you know, leaning into this ex- expression of trying to help clients, you know, on their, on their behavioral finance, what do you think is the, is the, maybe the pivotal part where most of your clients maybe experience the aha you're trying to help them, which, which is the, mm. the why, not the, not the how. Yeah. So I talk or, about, or is there one? The I mean, step. Yeah, yeah, there, no, there is. That's a good question. There's, I talk about this as a two-step process with clients and with our other advisors. I now have 23 other financial advisors on uh, on my team that work with and I guess effectively for me, but we're all a, a cooperative uh, building our own books of business. And I do a lot of mentoring and training. So I'm trying to do it the right way myself, but also pass this along to others. And the way I often will coach and the way I work with my clients is to sort of create two two chapters of the client life and the client experience, the client advisor interaction, if you will. The first chapter is what I, what we call housekeeping logistics. That's the stuff advisors have done forever, right? Um, or at least that the planning community has done forever. Let's take and let's make sure your beneficiaries are good. Let's make sure you're not missing any glaring blind spots. Let's make sure your investments are at least decent, if not good. Let's make sure your risk is appropriate, right? These are these are what I think a lot of advisors would identify as the work that we do, whether it's more planning oriented or asset management oriented. It's sort of a, it feels a little bit like a checkbox. And then it's a lot of maintenance mode for most advisors because it's a matter of portfolio alignments, right? Which now can ultimately be done through low hanging fruit, easy to use FinTech tools. I think every custodian now has an automatic rebalancing platform that you can customize however you want. So it used to be that, you know, somebody might be paying us to do rebalancing. Well, if that's what somebody's doing now, I'm not convinced that the human being is that important in that process anymore. But that pivot that happens or that aha moment that you mentioned, Larry, often happens when we move from phase one of logistics and housekeeping to that sort of life planning piece. Now, retirement is the the elephant in the room. That's the one that our industry sort of glommed onto and said everybody should retire, which I'm not convinced is true, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, but for, for me, the, the delivery of full comprehensive planning that encompasses everything from retirement planning, pre-retirement distribution planning, uh, tax strategy, business exit planning, and familial issues, certainly college planning, all these things that many advisors will be familiar with by wrapping them all up into 
a deliverable. That's when the aha moment usually comes for the client is when we transition from, okay, we've got your beneficiaries, correct? We know your risk portfolio is suitable and appropriate for you. You know that past performance is not a measure of future returns, but you should do pretty well given what we've structured. We know what we're going to rebalance like and such, but now let's talk about the real things that matter to you. And when we dive into those conversations about what's important, where we're heading and what's possible using kind of this, what we call a life by design philosophy of using money as a tool to help you live your best life and possibly one that you never even thought you'd be able to live. Obviously, you have to catch somebody early enough in their career. You can't start working with somebody who's already retired and and easily implement a lot of this stuff, right? So it naturally probably goes without saying, but my average client base is a little younger than most advisors because we're coming in early enough where we can effect change and then work with them for decades and start pulling these levers. But that's usually somewhere where that aha moment happens towards the beginning of that flip from phase one to phase two. Right. So do you have a general investment philosophy that you follow? You, you, you were talking about the investment side. You kind of touched on it very briefly. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I explain our philosophy from an investment standpoint and what I hope is a very simplistic way. I mean, it's, it's really meant to be understood by anyone. Um, my general overarching belief is best investments for the lowest cost. So it's sometimes low cost investment where I'm a mixture of, of, uh, of actively managed and passively managed. I came from a, a role during my time at my previous firm where I was sourcing, you know, best in class money managers for family offices. I was dealing in style box analysis and drift and, and all of your Zephyr analytics and such. Um, and so I certainly developed a skill set. If you do anything long enough, hopefully you get better at it. And I did uh, in identifying unique or best in class ideas. But in general, I start with the overarching philosophy that and I don't try to overcomplicate investing. And yet there are definitely not all pockets of the market are created equally. I mean, you guys, your logo is four different colored boxes. It's very representative of the fact that like, you know, if that box, if your logo was, was uh, indicative of the market, the boxes will all be the exact same color and size and shape and everything. Right. And they're not, and that's, we all know that's the market. So there's certainly areas where we're more proactive or even fully actively managed per fixed income would be a good example uh, emerging markets would be another where we do take the time then to go out and source uh, often more actively managed or, or quasi-actively managed money managers or ETFs or whatever it may be, SMAs, to deliver. But we're always in pursuit of the, you know, kind of the best investment for the lowest cost. And we'll even ask, ask our clients to challenge us around why, if I'm paying more for an investment, is it better than just utilizing the low-cost version? So, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that generally sums up my, my investment philosophy, if you will. And do you do most of that investment in-house or do you, or, or do you kind of subcontract it out? Yeah, it's a combination of both. We do have a couple of people in-house with strong analytics backgrounds that we rely on heavily. Um, we also have an outsourced uh, you know, CIO that we have available to us who we can go to um, so it, we're, again, we're not overly complicating it. We're doing a lot of cursory level scanning and monitoring in house. Um, and so it, yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a process there, but again, it, we try to keep the, the key is for us is to keep the, the process simple enough that we're not losing a lot of time 
to managing those investments. So I, I don't think it would surprise anyone listening who has an understanding of the world that, like, for instance, in the large cap equity space, we're pretty heavily indexed. Um, just because it's not an easy space to find outperformers, and, and by and large, our clients measure us against the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 anyway. So I'm not that eager to drift away from their expectations. So, yeah, it, it, there's a process there, but it's not a complex one. I have no doubt you'll man you'll interview other people where they'll say, "Oh, that's a terrible way to manage money." I I know we've grown like wildfire, and generally our clients don't want to spend too much time. When we and we do give clients the option, how much time do you want to talk about investments and how deep do you want to get in the weeds versus how much do you want to talk about financial planning and life planning versus how much do you want to talk about behavioral? And almost, I, I would say, seven out of ten clients want to spend the bulk of their time on financial planning, life planning, or behavioral related issues. Right. I think it's also partly because there is a general sense. You know, this also ebbs and flows, but that there is just a limited amount of ability for a manager to really beat a benchmark over time. You can probably 100%. find yeah, yeah. periods where they outperform and then it's just a matter of time before they split below that mark a little bit. So, uh, you know, it's it's not yeah. an, it's not an unfounded thought. I kind of want to get back to, you know, I'm kind of fascinated about your about your practice. I mean, do you do you start looking for people, you know, right out of college or like 10 years in or is there a, uh, a general marketing plan that you're after? How, do you, how are you doing that? Are we talking clients here? I just want to make sure I answer your question, Larry. Well, I mean, let's talk about it sounds or, like you have two channels. You're growing advisor relationships, but you're also growing yeah. the clients within those relationships, yeah. right? Yeah, so I've I've got an RIA that I am the owner of. It's a we're about 450 million in assets under management, and then a whole bunch of asset equivalent. Uh, we we do a lot of fixed fee planning and and assets under advisement that are not reflected in our AUM numbers. And of that, I'm about a third. Uh, my book of business personally is about 150, 160 million in assets. What the firm is looking for from an advisor standpoint is very different. Like uh, for my client standpoint, because I do have one of the benefits of our model is that I have an overflow mechanism by which I can be very selective about which clients I want to work with. And so I don't take on too many clients personally. My clients are generally business owners, at least a couple million in investable assets or will be uh, post sale average is quite a bit higher than that. And so but we do, as a firm, we don't have a stated minimum. So we get clients across the entire gamut. We bring in several hundred relationships a year, and they do range from anywhere from, you know, younger people just getting started to, you know, the, the, the quintessential retiree. So I hope that answers your question at a client level. From an advisor standpoint, it's not that easy to answer. We're, we're less, number one, we don't do any recruiting. Um, we don't do any marketing. All of our advisors have found us. Um, some have heard, I, you know, done other podcasts or video interviews or speaking engagements, and some have heard those and approached us and, and reached out to us through our website and said, I kind of like the model you have. It's pretty specifically advisor friendly. We don't have our advisors sign non-competes or non-solicit agreements. We believe that the, the, the relationship is built by the advisor for the advisor. And, uh, and so ultimately, the client in the advisor is the priority. Our goal was to support those advisors uh, however we can. And one of those ways is by paying them a lot more than the industry deems normal. Um, and number two is not locking them up with a restrictive legal agreements. So that said, some of our advisors have come to us out of CFP programs. It's not my favorite. Honestly, it's a lot more work. 
to train those advisors, but it's also part of our why of why we're doing this is we want to help younger advisors get into this industry. People who want to be advisors get into this industry. I'd say it's a mix for probably a third are younger people in their twenties who are maybe straight out of, there's a couple that are straight out of a CFP program. The rest maybe did a year or two or three in a training program or an employee role somewhere in the industry and now want to start to build something for themselves. A third of the advisors actually kind of come from outside of the industry, which is always a really interesting one for us on our, on our advisor roster right now, I've got a registered nurse who still pulls a couple of shifts at the hospital. I've got a PhD scientific researcher. I've got a, you know, a director of, these are all former roles prior to them coming on. I've got a, two engineers, one from Ford Motor Company. Um, one of our guys is a former marketing uh, director for a Fortune 500 furniture manufacturer. So, we get later in life people who come to us as well that say, you know, maybe I sold my business or the job in XYZ industry was not all I cracked up to be. I find myself giving my family and friends advice about money. I may as well get paid for it. And then the other third of our advisors are actually entrenched advisors with books of business that are looking for more autonomy or a higher payout or just a place where they can build what they see fit and, uh, and build something entrepreneurially for themselves, but with a turnkey platform and a lot of infrastructure and support. So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of runs the gamut in terms of who we're working with both at a client and an advisor level. Yeah. And you're basically providing the back office support and compliance and ADV assistance and that kind of thing, or do you allow them uh, to operate yeah, in individual names? But yeah, no, that's the baseline. And we do roll everybody up under a, under an exclusive U4. So everybody is under our umbrella, but, you know, there's a lot of TAMP programs out there that just do compliance and, and uh, operations. We do have centralized support, including paraplanning, advisor support. None of our advisors do their own paperwork, build their, if they don't want to, they don't have to build their own financial plans. They don't have to manage their own money. Um, they can turn all of that over to the firm. Um, we have a variety of different divisions where advisors can refer in 401k work or uh, tr trustee services, you name it. So it, and then on top of that, we do cover things like office space supplies and support staff, uh, along with training, mentoring, and a variety of other things. So it's, it's really meant to be what I think a good, a really good wirehouse should be, which is it's there to help you build the book. Unfortunately, somewhere along the way, the, the industry lost its way and became convinced that, you know, an 80%, 90% failout rate was a good thing because, hey, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And our goal is to really achieve kind of the opposite and help 80 to 90% of the people who want to do this work succeed through a, a solid amount of support and foundation. But then as they do that, they're building something of value for themselves as well. I was just thinking, you, know, you mentioned you have some some guys who are former engineers and you've got them doing this more kind of touchy-feely type of thing. And I wonder how they take to that. I'm kind of, you know, I mean. Oh, it's, yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because the two, they might listen to this. If they do, they'll they'll be yelling at their at their phones or their screens saying, uh, <laughs> you know, they're in, they're, these guys are, and they're quintessential engineers. I mean, they. I'd be doing them a disservice if I told you they didn't think, talk, act, and walk like engineers, right? <laughs> Both of these guys have engineering degrees and worked in for large engineer in an engineering role at large companies. Both of them have really done an incredible job pivoting 
do more of the planning. Both of them are interested in financial planning. One of them leads with financial planning. And so they've, they've on their own, they came to us uh, with the desire to do planning based work, not just investment work. And, uh, and it's been fun because over the last 12 months, but when they, when they started on with us, both of them were still fully employed in their day jobs as engineers. And we're starting to work with clients on the side. And over the last 12 months, both of them have gotten their practices up to a sustainable place where they've been able to quit their day jobs as engineers and launch full time. One of them actually specializes in being an advisor, a financial advisor to engineers specifically. He's a, you know, he's a recovering engineer working for engineers now. (laughs) And so, you know, part of his thing is the engineers are great at using the spreadsheet to calculate the optimal outcome, but a lot of them aren't that happy. I bet I could fix that. And uh, so props to Andy, if he ends up listening to this, because uh, yeah. Andy and, and Ethan, because they, uh, they've really made as anything. It's, you got to figure out your path and they figure it out through trial and error. Right. And, and we're, well, our, you know, we're opening up their eyes to what's possible. And then ultimately they get to go pick what they do. Yeah. Well, I've got basically, I see, I'm, I'm really kind of a engineer at heart. I think part of the measured risk portfolios thing is pretty engineering at the end of the day. Um, sure. but the, to me, the financial planning really is like a, a really more exotic Rubik's cube. You know, and every person arrives with, um, you know, a square, but not necessarily colored in on all the little pieces. And your job is a, I think, you know, so I'm going to support, he said his name was Andy. I'm going to support Andy in the engineering role and say, listen, good on you. Because it's a, it sometimes takes that engineering mind to get your arms around all these things and particularly present it in a way that's digestible to the, to the end user. To the client, yeah. So. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. All right. So um, any experience across the firm in any kind of options-based strategies or particularly like we're in a really <laughs> volatile environment right now and you've got, yeah. uh, you know, only limited number of tools that you're resourced yeah. to try and manage that. Yeah, we do have a few op, uh, advisors. They're, they have the latitude to do it. Obviously, we, there's, we always have to be mindful of compliance governors and we are a fee-only RIA. That's advice-only. So we're not a trading firm. We're not a... You know, so by and large, the MO is to hire out a lot of that specialty work. But there are definitely, in fact, one of our engineers loves risk parity as an investment strategy. I have no horse in that race. And so they're doing some option work there. A couple of our other advisors do use option work. I've helped business owners use options to hedge out maybe their spot commodity risk for years. Uh, We've got companies where if they're a large they're purchasing a ton of sugar for an apple orchard uh, farm. We might help them use options to hedge out the price of sugar or use hedged options to put a hedge in place against the markets more as an insurance piece. Um, We don't do any really speculative option trading, but yeah, we definitely, we have option trades running through a blotter, uh, but it's here and there. It's not a firm wide usage. I think you you custody at TD and Schwab and uh, other yeah. places or just those two? TD, uh, how much time do you have? TD, Schwab, Fidelity, Altruist, uh, Asset Mark, and Hanlon. This is the joy of bringing in advisors from all over the industry as you inherit custodians like, you know, stray pets. So we we have, those are our primary six custodians, soon to be five after Schwab absorbs TD. 
and uh, yeah, so that we're always we, we want to do what's you, right for the client. And yeah, go ahead. Right. Were you predominantly Schwab with TD in second place, or was it TD first with Schwab in second no, place, we were, or was it Fidelity? Yeah, I actually, it's funny. I inherited TD as well. I started the firm with zero assets, as I mentioned, which meant no custodian wanted to talk to me nine years ago. So I right. started the firm with Scott Trade when they had okay. an RIA platform. Now I'm dating myself, I guess. And then TD absorbed Scott Trade. So TD was the first sort of major custodian that I I had. And uh, I just didn't really like TD. And so as soon as I hit, I think it was at the time, this was maybe seven or eight years ago, I guess it'd be about eight years ago after my first year. Um, once I got the 10 million required to move to Schwab's platform, um, I did launch a relationship with Schwab. The bulk of our assets for a long time were at Schwab until we brought over multiple advisors who used Fidelity. And so now we're, the bulk of our assets are still custody at either Fidelity or Schwab. How do you navigate the regulatory environment? You know, you're bringing on all these people, you know, newbies, you know, some yeah. people with established, and like, how are you finding the regulatory environment and how are you navigating that? And also what are some yeah, of the tools? It's the biggest challenge guys. It's, um, you know, I've had a lot of friends in the industry call me crazy, right? It's sort of a, there's no question bringing on other people, other advisors is the path of most resistance, but it's also really a strong part of my why. And so we lose the most sleep around regulatory and compliance. Um, we're obviously SEC registered. And so we, I mean, I, I pay to go through a full mock audit every year just to test. We're adamant about uh, I mean, from a from a risk control standpoint, I basically run it like a FINRA firm, even though we're no longer FINRA. Um, uh, and uh, and that's because I know it's the one thing that could land us in hot water if we didn't do it right. So it's really important to do it right. Again, I'm ex-military, so I'm pretty good at developing systems and then following them because I came from a place and a, and a time and a culture where, you know, if you made mistakes, someone died. And we kind of adopted that as a compliance philosophy too, not necessarily literally, obviously, but, but, um, we pay a lot of close. money to yeah, make close. sure that those, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Close. So, yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we pay uh, a fair amount of money to outsource compliance operations to do review all of our books on the regular, uh, review our trade blotters regularly. We have a really stringent compliance protocol system with our advisors of how they report, they know exactly, uh, we talk about compliance all the time. And so our team, they probably get sick of me talking about compliance, but the reality is it's an important part of the piece and it's there to protect our advisors. And so it's the biggest challenge by far. I don't think you want me to bore you with all the things we do do from a compliance perspective, but the reality is we have a really robust and comprehensive compliance program to make sure that we're always above board. For instance, you know, we, we keep, I can tell you at all times, we have a list of any investments that if an advisor wants to run their own managed money, that's fine, but you have to run by us what those holdings are and we bet them out and do a, a, a fee standardization check and, and a performance check and just make sure if, even if there's, is there anything out there we need to be knowing that exists. So there's a lot, there's a lot of yeah. aspects to that. 
uh, you know, what's the, the integration like? I mean, I, I know every advisor comes with their own CRM and their own chat bot and their own, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So do you have an integration kind yeah. of strategy or, or do you allow them to run? Yeah. <laughs> it started really small and it got really big. Now I think our <laughs> checklist for onboarding a new advisor, regardless of whether they're new to the industry or coming with a hundred million dollar book is pretty standardized. It's really in-depth. I want to say our checklist is something like 80 things where, you know, it's, uh, we don't necessarily allow someone to be really cavalier with something that there's no reason to be cavalier with. For instance, CRM, it just doesn't make any sense. Most of the same programmers developed Redbox and Juncture, Redtail and Wealthbox and Juncture. And so we usually will give optionality based on what cost looks like. And we are taking flyers on some really advisors who sometimes don't produce any revenue at the beginning or produce very little. So we'll usually have kind of a stepped up model where once an advisor is producing above a certain level, there's additional perks and and, and platforms. Um, But every advisor right from the beginning has everything they need, including a CRM. At the end of the day, because we, there is some latitude but not in a way we've been really careful about from a risk perspective, right? If we can, we, we make sure all the, even though we don't own the client, we believe the advisor does, the data is all corralled in the exact same way. So our advisors set up their client folders and their client files the exact same way. Um, we were reviewing client notes regularly, those kinds of things. So yeah, it, integration is used to be one of my bigger headaches and now we've really got it down to science and we we're onboarding five new advisors right now and so they're going through a little bit of that onboarding together and then the ones who already know how to do the work and are coming from within the industry will roll straight into servicing and managing their own book we have an onboarding specialist on our team who helps the transitions go smoothly we work with the custodians where we have good relationships to to help those go smoothly and then if somebody's new or newer to the industry, they roll straight from our onboarding program into our training program. So, Are you finding that there's any more activity generated on the onboarding of new reps in light of all of the current financial turmoil at some of the regional banks? Or are you uh, No, and not because it's a bad question, but because it seems like in my 20-year career, there's always been something to make starting out new difficult, right? There's always been some reason, whether it's low. You know, a war here, a war there, a default there here, a default. I mean, at the end of the day, the regional bank thing, I'm not in Silicon Valley. Maybe I'd feel differently if I was, but that the bulk of that is, is out there. And we do have a few clients that bank there, but by and large, that's not posed an issue for onboarding new advisors. I think, you know, we've onboarded advisors during COVID. We have onboarded advisors during uh, high inflationary environment. We've onboarded advisors really since it seems like there's always been something to make an advisor onboarding more difficult. By and large, we stay focused but on making I was, sure the I client was, has a really. Yeah, sorry, I was, I was more, more directly to see more opportunities to get advisors from some of the smaller regional banks and to. Oh, yeah. I, you know, well, number one, I'm not by though. I, our, our locations are not in the hotbeds of First Republic or SVB. So I don't know that we'll have any chance at the end of the day, because we don't recruit, I'm not going to go looking for them. If they find us, that's great. But, you know, our growth is a, is a, is a measured growth. We want to grow with the right people the right way. 
And sometimes that's that's fast and sometimes that's slow, but we're not going to go out and look for those people. Honestly, in my, just based on some, a lot of the, I I don't have a lot of love for the bank channel, so I'm not convinced there are people I'd want anyway, just because I'm, some of them might be wonderful human beings, but I, you know, the banks do things very differently than a fee only independent RIA does. So um, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, we've got enough advisors coming from other places that I don't know that I'll even try. What are some of the key, go ahead, Larry. That's right, Barb, finish up. What are some of the key trends and developments that you've seen in the RIA industry that you either hate or love? Uh, That's a really good question, Bernard. One of the trends that I'm not sure what to do with, I think in some ways I hate it and in other ways I love it, is the roll up to the larger RIAs. You're seeing the focus financials of the world roll up a lot of RIAs. Uh, you're seeing the inverse of that with the United Capitals of the world getting rolled up in Goldman Sachs. I mean, at the end of the day, the challenge the RIA community has always had is they were always the little brother to the wirehouse industry. And the impact that the RIA space was having was, frankly, if I'm honest, pretty minimal. You know, we could talk about altruism and idealism all day long, but at the end of the day, the, the assets were still flowing to the wirehouses and spades. And that's no longer true. I mean, I, I stay close to the XYPN and Michael Kitsis and, and the perfect RIA and a lot of these larger thought leadership groups that are paying attention to this stuff a lot closer than I am. And the thing we're definitely seeing is the headcount in the wirehouse world is shrinking dramatically. The asset level hasn't really been shrinking, but hasn't really been growing either, despite growing markets, which tells me they're losing market share in the form of headcount, but treading water in terms of assets because they're getting lucky because of good market timing. And ultimately you're seeing an incredible move towards independence. One of the things that I hate is that, and this is an industry thing that the RI has a chance to solve for and isn't doing a very good job of, is that, uh, you know, in the past, the, the, the model to being a financial advisor was either go into a wirehouse or insurance or bank channel training program, then become a producer or go get a W2 job working somewhere as a support advisor or what have you, and maybe develop into an advisor through time. And if you didn't want to do either of those, then you only had one alternative and it was to start a firm from scratch, which is a very hard thing to do. And I'm, I know because I've done it. And there's a lot of what I've learned is there's a lot of advisors in the world who shouldn't start firms, but they also don't want to take W2 jobs. They want some upside. They want some agency and they don't want to go through the wirehouse or bank training programs. If those are even a thing anymore, I know they're theoretically a thing, but I don't know how good they are. So there's this void or this chasm between not wanting to be an employee and not wanting to have to be an entrepreneur and start a firm from scratch, which is why we built this kind of cooperative model the way we have is because we're trying to to give people who want to do the work a happy medium where they can have agency and they can have upside and they can develop business and they can build a book on their own terms, but do it with help and support and infrastructure and not be relegated into a W-2 job. I I hate that the industry and and especially the RIA space is kind of blowing a chance, in my opinion, to be part of that solution. And they're by and large still saying, oh, you want to be independent? Go start a firm. And I just don't, I've not been able to reconcile this. 
Um, I'm one, you know, my firm is one of the largest by assets firms in the XY planning network, which is the largest network of independent financial planning firms. Uh, it's now larger than NAPFA, I believe. And at the end of the day, their answer is, and if anybody from XY watches this, I, you, you've probably heard me say it before, but you know, XY wants everyone to start firms. And I, I just, having been down that road, it's an entrepreneurial journey that only a certain percentage of the population should do. And we're not giving advisors enough. Um, what I love about the RIA space is they're still doing the work in a better way than what it's been traditionally done and delivering results through creative and thoughtful effort around how we do the work. Yeah, I think that's an excellent place to wrap up. I couldn't f- figure out a nicer way to, to call it. But before we do that, is there any question we might have not asked you that you were hoping to answer or anything you just would like to oh, lob out there? No, I, I don't think so. I think the one thing I get asked a lot is, is that I always enjoy having a chance to share is the, so many advisors get into their career, whether it's more asset management driven, more business development driven, more planning driven, more, it doesn't matter. A lot of us you took advantage of whatever opportunities were given to us and then made our decisions and ultimately sort of landed where we are. Instead of being more thoughtful and intentional about understanding what kind of practice you want to build, what kind of life you want to build, what kind of work you want to do, and then driving that lane instead of the opportunities presenting themselves. And my encouragement to anyone who's an existing advisor or thinking about being an advisor, spend a little time thinking about what it is you want to build. What kind of practice do you want to have? There's lots of options now. There didn't used to be. You used to get handed the phone book as you, you know, Larry, and said dial for dollars, right? And, and there's so many ways to build a practice now, not just mo- business models, but also ways to develop. I have now introverted advisors who don't like networking. That was blasphemous 20 years ago, right? They're writing, they're creating content, they're engaging with the public in other ways. So I'd love to see advisors be more thoughtful about what it is they want to build and then go find that thing because we're increasingly in a world where if you want to do something, there's a way to do it out there. You just have to look hard enough. All right, Ben, uh, it was great spending some time with you this afternoon, or this, I, I'm assuming it's going to be this afternoon for you. And um, it is. Yeah. Look, forward to, look forward to get to know you better over time. Likewise, gentlemen. Thanks for your time. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.